Welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm John Fletcher, the Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ, and with me here is Ken Flagel, Senior Editor, and today we'll be talking about the content in the November 4th issue of the journal. A lot of things going on. Ken's talking about his editorial on uh, chronically ill children and fragile families. We've got guidelines on prostate cancer screening, some interesting research about those in and outside trials, the Salon article about Sue Rodriguez. Ken, on the front cover of this issue, we've got a little baby and uh, a worried-looking mum feeding some pink liquid in through a nasogastric tube. Obviously, this child's got a bit of a long-term problem, and your uh, editorial is about chronically ill children. Uh, it's also linked, I think, to a commentary. Wh- which came first, the editorial or the commentary? It, uh, the commentary came first. It's by Dr. Isle Cohen at the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. He runs a program there for children with medically complex problems who require complex care and has uh, tried to draw attention to this growing population. It's actually a good news, bad news story because it's a triumph of modern medicine that a child born with any sort of major congenital defect now has a better than 67% chance of surviving to age 20. So there's more of them? Many more. And this has got a big demand on health care and a big cost. One of the numbers he gives in his piece is that although these children make up 1% of the population, they uh, consume 41% of all pediatric care in our hospitals. So there's a big cost implication. It's a lot of burden for the child too because they're suffering with disability, they have a daily dependence on technology and they get fragile and so they are subject to other illnesses that come along and their caregivers are subject to burnout. So it's obviously a big burden on families and the healthcare system. Yes. Um, but what can be done about it? What do you? What's the the sort of point you're wishing to get across? Well, the trend is to move their care to the home where the family is taking care of the child. Uh, and at the moment, the problem with that care is that it's focused on seniors rather than on these children, and it tends to be um, hospital-based, and it's uh, provincial, it's ad hoc, it's disease-based, and it's patchy. So what uh, he's calling for is care that is um, potentially available in the pediatric hospitals but is predominantly given by the community hospital closer to the patient and indeed in the child's home and that it be more coherent. Well, what we did in the editorial was we endorsed what Dr. Cohen had to say but we took the perspective of the families because uh, he produced a statistic from a large American cohort showing that a family who has a child like this, on average, one of the parents has to give up their job to take care of this child. So it's a pretty full-time job. And this is in a family who already have big economic demands paying for the care themselves. They, they are subject to burnout. Uh, they are more subject to having chronic medical problems and depression, about a two-fold increase. 23% of them are single parents compared to 16% in the general population. So what we, what we asked for in the um, editorial was to shift more of the home care money to them. The, the children make up 15% of the home care population at the moment, but they're only getting about 2% of the funding. And we asked that the care be more consistent and coherent and closer to home. And above all, we asked that it be, rather than disease-based or eligibility-based, which it tends to be now, that it be 
like the geriatric care, subject to a needs assessment and subject to negotiation with the patient and the caregivers, finding out what they actually need. So, so we're used to providing uh, long-term uh, home support and social care for um, elderly patients. Correct. And you're really calling for that kind of thinking to be applied to this new and growing group of chronically ill children. That's correct. Thanks, Ken. We've got, as Ken mentioned, uh, a commentary that covers this same topic. And the other commentary in this issue is uh, related to the uh, new guidelines that are out on prostate cancer screening. We've got the Canadian Task Force guidelines on prostate cancer screening, which I think, uh, reading between the lines, seem to say don't do it without a thorough conversation with the patient. Commentary is sort of taking a slightly different view, saying, um, you know, perhaps this is good for some people. So, Ken, um, you know, you're of the age. Have you had uh, your PSA checked? In fact, I have, John, and uh, the reason I have is that my attitude to prostate cancer is a bit like my attitude to colon cancer and that these are two diseases we don't need to die from anymore. And there actually is demonstrated, the evidence is still poor, there's a demonstrated mortality benefit screening men with PSA annually in my age group, age 55 to 69. Um, And there's also some thought, although the data is even poorer, that people with a first-degree relative or black men might also benefit from screening. But you're right. We should generally stop doing it to all these anxious men and get back to using the old finger. Yeah, well, I'm not sure whether I fall into that uh, group or uh, just anxious, but I certainly don't. uh, I certainly won't be going forward for uh, PSA screening. So that's the... uh, That's the commentaries and um, a look at the guidelines and uh, Ken's editorial. We've got the usual mixture of things in the journal as well, uh, this issue. Two research articles. One of them is about uh, guidelines and uh, when do they need to be updated? Do Do they stay current for a long time? Yes, the paper is by the Alonso Cielo group out of Spain and they looked at uh, four clinical guidelines and looked at them at one, uh, two and three years and uh, four years and found that uh, one in five recommendations are outdated after three years. So guidelines, or at least the recommendations in them, going out of date fairly quickly. This is, this is a Spanish study, isn't it? But do you think, that's, do you think that applies to Canada? Uh, I think it does because they did uh, survey quite a, a large group of uh, clinicians and uh, the guideline topics are rather diverse. So I think it is true. I think this adds another piece to the puzzle that frustrates guideline developers, and that is why don't we practitioners take up their guidelines more faithfully? And I think the answer may be that we have generally known that they get rapidly out of date, and now here's some proof, and there's a message back to guideline developers here. Which is stay up to date. It's time to get into the routine of updating guidelines, probably at about three years according to our study. So maybe, maybe guidelines should be a bit like the tin of baked beans that I buy that has a, an expiry date on it. Indeed. Um, the other piece of research is one that um, I, I certainly I'm quite interested in. It's about uh, whether there is a health benefit taking part in a clinical trial. And I was brought up with the uh, received wisdom that um, clinical care was better inside trials than outside trials, and therefore patients should take every opportunity to participate in a clinical trial. There's been quite a debate about this because the the opposing view is that uh, patients are guinea pigs. 
if they take part in a trial and exposing themselves to, to harm. So this systematic review has gathered together a lot of randomized control trials that uh, compared the outcomes of patients who were in trials uh, to the outcomes of patients uh, who were studied alongside those in the trial but not actually entered into the trial. And it seems to be that the, uh, the answer is it makes no difference really whether uh, you're in a trial or outside of a trial. The clinical outcomes are pretty much the same. The one exception being um, if the trial drug happens to be uh, particularly effective. Right. I think the other uh, interesting point about this paper and why we're publishing is that it's been generally known that if you're getting a new treatment inside a trial, your chances of benefiting are probably better inside the trial. What this uh, review looks at is if you're getting the same treatment inside the trial or outside the trial, are you taking an unnecessary risk by going into the trial? Why don't you just take the treatment? Um, and I think this gives a very good answer that uh, really the risk is not worse and people generally can continue to go into trials for the reason they always have, which is really an altruistic reason. Really, if clinical equipoise exists at the opening of the trial, no one knows if it's going to be any good for you or not. So I think we should assure, reassure our patients that it's it may be good for them and it's certainly not going to be harmful for them to enroll in a trial. Yeah, I think it certainly uh, knocks on the head the uh, question of, of, of whether patients are, are guinea pigs and might, might be at risk. So looking at the other content in the journal, we've, we've got practice, we've got our five things series. Is there anything that sort of struck you, Ken, as uh, you, you look through this issue that you'd like to highlight? Uh, there was one article that I really appreciated because it's very oriented toward clinical practice. It's the article on avoiding infections in patients for whom one is proposing to begin prednisone. Yeah, that's the, that's the case report of um, the man who's been diagnosed with, I think, bullous pemphigoids, can right. need high-dose steroids. And the right. question is, is there going to be some reactivation of, uh, of bacterial or viral infection? Right. And these authors are focused on that kind of case where you're proposing to use more than 40 milligrams of prednisone for more than a month. So they do say that there is literature evidence to uh, consider screening the patient for tuberculosis and for hepatitis B and C, and in special patients to look for the possibility of the presence of the parasite strongoloides or the other one, a pneumocystis chirovecchi, and one could give appropriate treatment or uh, prevention for those two infections. So I thought it was a very helpful article, and I'm actually going to keep it in my office because I don't do this every day, and it's kind of needed on occasion. There's something else that, that, that I didn't know actually was uh, about, uh, did you know you could uh, snip someone's hair and check for cortisol levels? No, I didn't. So Tell me historic, more. Well, there's a, quite an interesting, um, it, well, it's a, a picture, which is a lovely graph of uh, cortisol le levels over three years in, um, in a woman who took some time to r really get to the diagnosis of Addison's disease. And then the clinical team snipped her hair, and uh, it must have been pretty long, actually, if they mm. had three years' worth of, mm. of this. And they managed to chart um, over time the cortisol levels in the hair mm. to show that really she'd been uh, developing um, Addison's over some time. There's another article in this issue which is also practice-relevant, and that's a look at uh, the periodic health exam. This is our special five things uh, section. It's basically doing a bit of teaching as to how we got here, which is that 
It uh, arose after the Industrial Revolution when employers began to be worried about the health of their employees and began to offer health maintenance annual checkups. And uh, these authors don't mention it, but the social history in the U.S. is interesting because it really took off during the Depression when we had penniless patients and dollarless doctors. So this was very nicely packaged by the American Medical Association as the thing to do to stay alive. And this journal, in fact, is uh, very well known for its uh, initiative on the periodic health exam. We came out with the first major review of what was good and what wasn't. And we've now arrived at the state where we don't think it's much good for anything. And if it is being done, you should look very carefully at the patient in front of you and uh, form it and, and select carefully for the patient's particular risks. What's special about this particular uh, five things um, is that it's uh, one in our series that are highlighting the Choosing Wisely campaign. What's that about, John? Well, the Choosing Wisely campaign is is asking doctors uh, across Canada um, to identify the sorts of things that uh, we should probably be doing less of, and um, that is to be a conversation starter with patients when um, they're asking for things that might not be appropriate. And the periodic health examination would seem to be one of those uh, things that uh, we could probably drop um, and uh, spend time more effectively doing something else. So we've got um, a number of other five things and decision articles coming out around uh, the Choosing Wisely campaign which uh, was launched this year and uh, we're doing our bet to to promote that over the next six months or so. So that's something to look out for in, in future issues of the journal. The other thing that's pretty current at the moment and a lot of people are talking about it of course is, uh, is end-of-life care and the uh, possibility of the law changing um, on physician-assisted suicide. I'm not sure that the journal can necessarily take a, a firm line one way or the other. So we're trying to, uh, over time, uh, release articles that will be of interest in this debate. And um, I'm, uh, I'm pleased that we've got in the salon section uh, this issue an account from the lawyer who uh, looked after and, and uh, helped Sue Rodriguez through her trial back in the uh, early 90s, yes, giving a personal account of it's, it, 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 his I, care. It is a very interesting account. I don't think it's going to move the debate forward, but it's a very personal look at, at a very um, exceptional one-patient event in Canadian history. Sven Robinson, the author, was actually a member of Parliament at the time, and he was present when she was euthanized and, in fact, held her in his arms until she died. But that didn't happen in Canada, did yes, it? Yes, it did. It happened on Vancouver Island, I believe. Yeah. Um, w- what he does do in the article is that he, he reflects on his personal experience of that, but he also gives us a very clear depiction of Sue Rodriguez's viewpoint. And it's surprisingly modern and surprisingly relevant to, to the conversation that's taking place today in the country. So that's a highly recommended column for our readers. John, what is going to happen to our salon column? Have we got plans for that? Well, we're changing the name of the back page, and uh, we're still having an internal competition about what that will be. The page itself will be, I think, fresher and dealing more with a variety of content. But I wouldn't want to give away too much. 
except say look out in December for the new bank page. So I think we've actually sort of managed to go through the issue from cover to cover. Remember to look online. There's more content online. Don't forget the blogs. There's a lively debate going on there uh, around end-of-life care at the moment. But that wraps up what we've got in this issue, November the 4th. Um, I'm John Fletcher, and uh, with me has been Ken Flagel.